On Monday, Thursday, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, giving the church its true identity, the, church, the children and people of God. And he also revealed the heart of God in a simple act, a humility, humiliating act, you might say, the utter selflessness and humility of God who serves humanity as a slave. And this homily, we're going to explore how God feeds and cleanses us, shaping us into the church who serves and witnesses to the world. Now, the Lord's Supper is not something that Jesus created out of thin air. He instituted the Lord's Supper as the new Passover for the new Exodus, which means it was intrinsically connected to the first Passover and Exodus, which we read about in Exodus this evening. And in that passage, God gives the instructions for the first liturgical and real celebration of the Passover and Exodus. This is the foundational feast for Israel. Is their Independence Day, their New Year's, and their, fourth, and their Easter all wrapped into one. And on that night, they are delivered from the judgment of death that came upon the Egyptians in the Passover, and they are rescued from the slavery and oppression of Egypt. And what is God to create for them to celebrate this event? A family feast. He creates a family feast. But this is just not, not just your normal Thanksgiving feast where everybody goes and pigs out and remembers and tries to be a little thankful. No, this is not a feast of nostalgia. This is a feast of remembrance. They remembered. They brought the, pre the, the past feast into the future. Now, let me explain. Now, when we remember something, we usually think of it as something that just happened in the past. Yesterday, I ate, this morning, I ate breakfast in the past. But for Israel, when they celebrated the Passover... They were not just remembering an event that happened long, long ago. They were entering into the event and participated in it themselves. Through the providential power of God, they participated in the first Passover. What does this mean? This means that for every Jew, every Jew throughout history experienced the first Passover. They experienced the Exodus. We can see this when God, speaking to his people, the people of Israel through the prophet Amos, hundreds of years after the Exodus, says, I brought you, in the present moment, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. So this means that every Israelite, from a child to adult, every year, in the first month, the month of months, experienced the Passover and Exodus. And this formed them and their identity. It gave them the identity of being the rescued people of God. And this made them a unique people, a holy nation, called to serve and witness to the Lord, serve and witness to the world about the God who saved them. Now, we know that Israel's identity, being that, was still conflicted, and that God, need, God uh, that something else needed to happen. Uh, God, and sa God saved and created a people to witness to him, but sin and death still reigned in their hearts. There was still something deeper that needed to be fixed. They needed a new Passover and Exodus, where sin and death were dealt with. They needed the Lamb of God, who was chosen before the creation to save the world. And Israel knew this. Israel knew that a greater salvation was re required. A new covenant, inaugurated by a new Exodus and Messiah. 
They long for what, Jeru- uh, for what Jeremiah described. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And my friends, Jesus, Jesus was the long-for Messiah, the new covenant. He himself was the new exodus. And in his death and resurrection, he delivered humanity from the bondage of sin and death. And with the new exodus came a new Passover, a feast to celebrate and make present the saving acts of God in Christ. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover meal that Jews had been celebrating since the first one, but he did it with a different focus and purpose. He declared that the new covenant of salvation was fulfilled in him. He focused the meal on the bread and the wine, not the lamb, because Jesus was the lamb that was to be sacrificed for God to pass over our sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain for us. And when Christians eat the bread and wine, we receive his body and blood, his very life poured out for us in faith. And like the first Passover, Jesus commanded that his disciples do this in remembrance, meaning that every time we receive the bread and wine, every week, we are receiving and participating in the salvation that God accomplished in the death of Christ. Through the providential power of God, we participate in the Lord's Supper and receive his body and blood. In short, just as the ancient Jews saw the Passover as a participation in the exodus from Egypt, so too St. Paul and other early Christians saw the Eucharist as a real participation in both the Last Supper and the death of Christ. So Jesus' death is the new Passover, his resurrection is the new exodus, and on the night before it all happened, we were given a liturgy and feast so we could participate in his death and resurrection, which makes us the new people of God which makes a whole new people of God out of those who are in Christ. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you are receiving mercy. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we we are the reconciled people of God and Christ. This is who we are, one body in Christ, all of us. We may not feel it all the time or think it, But if you are baptized into Christ and believe in his name, you are one body with him and everyone in the church. And I mean everyone, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, even Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) We are all one in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his reconciling work on the cross. Friends, if you think we have it bad, we can look at the church in Corinth And for all their divisions and dysfunction, Paul told them, you are one in Christ. You are one body. If this is true for them, this is true for us. The Lord's Supper makes us one body in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the short story and movie adaptation of Babette's Feast is a good illustration of this amazing reality. It tells the story of a woman who is hired to be 
the cook for a conservative Christian community in Denmark. Now this community lives with a veneer of holiness, covering resentment, pride, and judgmentalism. Babette came to this community and humbly served them, making the austere meals they required of her. And one day, Babette won the French lottery, giving her enough money to return home to France in luxury. But before she left, she wanted to make one more meal for the community on the anniversary of its founding. The community agreed, but being good, you know, austere Christians, they they said they won't enjoy the meal. They agreed amongst themselves they won't enjoy the meal unless they indulge in sin and the rich, by eating rich food. So Babette prepares and prepares and creates an exquisite, extravagant French feast. And as she does this, we as the readers or the, the viewers realize she's actually this famous French chef. She knows what she's doing. And so the night of the community's founding arrives and the first course is served in silence and austerity. But slowly, people begin to talk and realize this is really, really good. Begin to enjoy the food. And then the wine. <laughs> the finest vintage in France and is served and everything changes. People begin to laugh. They begin to reconcile. They begin to forgive and love each other. And one person says, after all, did not the Lord Jesus say, love one another? After the meal, we find out Babette had spent her entire fortune on this meal, sacrificing everything to show extravagant lo love for this community. This meal transformed the community from being resentful and judgmental to being a community that was reconciled with one another and loved each other. They became one body in Christ. Babette's feast is a powerful picture of what the Eucharist is for us. Jesus gave us everything, his very life, so we could have life in him. And in the Eucharist, we receive his life, and we are united to one another. We are one body. And this, my friend, is why we must discern the body in each other. We must see each other as brothers and sisters, as one body and blood. So on Monday, Thursday, Jesus fed us with the sacrament of his body and blood, making us reconciled, loved, and loving witnesses to the gospel. And what should the reconciled people of God look like? On the Eucharistic meal, we are given the life of Jesus with a purpose, to become servants and witnesses to the world, just as Jesus did. Jesus Christ, eternal God incarnate, not only humbled himself to become a human being, he could have become a human being and become a king or something, no. He humbled himself to the point of being a slave. Now, in our translation, it says servant, but the, the Greek word is, is doulos, slave. He became a slave to his disciples. And this humility, my friends, is a revelation of who our God is. One of my New Testament professors from se seminary said it this way. This is what God himself is like. He washes feet, even the feet of the one who will betray him. As an aside, when people say, or maybe you've thought, they don't believe in God, ask and think about what God you don't believe in. It, won't, it will most, most likely not be this God of Scripture. The God who washes his enemies' feet. The God who offers himself for the sins of his enemies. And my friends, we should check our own hearts and minds. Is this the God we truly believe in?
So Jesus washed his disciples' feet and commanded us to love one another just as he loves us. Well, what, what does this look like? Well, here, here's an example. I think it looks something like this. In the year 261 AD, it was still illegal to be a Christian. And in that same year, a plague ravaged the city of Alexandria in Egypt. The disease was rampant, affecting every household. And as it spread, people in their desperation and despair threw the bodies of the dead and the dying into the streets to try to cast out the disease. And as the dying piled on the dead, Christians left their place of hiding and came out to a, into the street to nurse the sick back to health, washing their bodies and to bury the dead. This act of selfless love, loving others as Christ has loved us, was summed up by the words of the Bishop of Alexandria, St. Dionysius. Many who healed others fell victim themselves. The best of our brethren have been taken from us in this manner. Some were priests, others deacons, some laity of great worth. My friends, the leaders of the church died. They died for the sake of their dying and dead persecutors as a witness to Christ's deep and extravagant love. I think it also looks a little bit like this. John Vanier, founder of La Arche Communities, told this following story. I know a man who lived in Paris. His wife had Alzheimer's. He was an important businessman. His life was filled with busyness. But he said that when his wife felt sick, I just couldn't put her into the institution. So I kept her. I fed her. I bathed her. I went to Paris to visit them. And this businessman who, who had been very busy all his life said, I have changed. I've become more human. I got a letter from him recently. He said that in the middle of the night, his wife woke up, woke him up. She came out of the fog for a moment and said, darling, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing for me. And she fell back into the fog. He told me I wept, and I wept. This is what happens when Jesus feeds and serves us. We become people who serve and witness to Jesus in our lives, serving even to death our persecutors, strangers, spiritually blind and broken, serving those who do not know, do not love you, can't love you or have forgotten how to love you. This is what the meal of Jesus and the slavery of Jesus makes us, cross-shaped servants and witnesses to the world. Tonight, Jesus feeds us his body and blood. He washes our feet as a slave for us. And in doing this, we participate in his death, the new covenant of his body and blood. We are transformed and united to Christ and to one another like the stodgy guests at Babette's feast, we slowly realize, doesn't Jesus say, love one another? So how? Well, friends, we have to first receive the love of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit because we can't, we simply cannot love others if we do not know how deeply loved we are by God. And then we have to repent of the areas of sin, vice, rebellion, self-centeredness in our hearts that keep us from loving God and others. Finally, sacrificially, simply, and extravagantly, we serve and witness to the world as one body. My friends, we need each other to serve and witness faithfully. When we are united as the body of Christ in service, we become witnesses to the reality of God himself. We begin to live in such a way 
that one's life would make no sense if God did not intervene. We begin to live the gospel. And this means sacrificial living. It means laying down our lives, preferences, possessions, and daily taking up the washbin and the cross of Christ to serve as Jesus serves. On Monday, Thursday, God feeds and cleans us, making us into the church who serves and witnesses to the world. Let it be, Lord. Let it be. Amen. Amen. We're going to now turn.